We're in Romans 7, finishing up law school. Paul's words to us about what the law, the, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of God that, that surround them and amplify them have to do with you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. Good to be back in Romans after a week away. Romans chapter 7. If you're a news junkie like me, you notice that, that news comes in trends. There are the headlines, the, the dramatic occurrences, but, but the, the second page, if you, if you scroll down beyond the day's dramatic events, there are trends. Certain, certain subjects seems to come in waves. And one of those waves lately has been a spate of articles about friendship. Articles and books and articles about books talking about the decline, some would even say the death of friendship in our society. Even before COVID was COVID, people were talking about this. Even before COVID was COVID and COVID did what it did, the American Surgeon General back in, in I think it was 2018, was talking about an epidemic of loneliness in our society, quoting studies showing one out of five Americans are suffering from dangerously, uh, who are, are, are dangerously socially isolated, was the phrase. And since COVID, obviously that trend has only continued. Not surprising, given the barriers that were imposed in response to the pandemic. The trend has only gotten worse, dramatically worse, in fact. Reach back to 1990, there are studies reporting that almost no one would raise their hand and say, yeah, I have no friends. It was like 2 or 3% in 1990 said, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly and completely alone. In 2021, that number jumped to double digits. And, and the situation continues to worsen, even though most of the COVID-related restrictions have been removed. But it makes sense, if you think about it. The restrictions are gone, but our behavior hasn't changed that much. It hasn't reverted completely. People are still working remotely, still shopping online, getting food delivered, streaming movies rather than going to theaters, spending inordinate amounts of time online, watching or scrolling or gaming. And those are all things, a little here and a little there and a little there, those are things that all add up to profound social isolation. Because the restrictions have changed, but our habits haven't changed. They haven't changed back, not completely. When COVID was COVID, when we couldn't go to home group, when we couldn't go to book club, when our bowling league was canceled, when there weren't any pickup basketball games to be found, when weekend dinners with families didn't happen and once a month gatherings were off the table, we found things to take the place of what had been in our lives. Something filled that space. And as a society, we've been reluctant to give those somethings up. We haven't gone all the way back. And COVID isn't the only reason, of course. It's easy, it's, it's actually too easy to blame COVID for everything. 
There are a lot of other forces at play. There's an unprecedented expectation of flexibility in the workplace today. And that's kind of paradoxical given what a hard time companies are having hiring people. But most jobs come with uh, uh, the assumption that your shift, your schedule, even your work location might change on a moment's notice. Increasing expectation of participation from parents and grandparents in their children's schools. I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's a new thing, relatively. I don't remember my grandparents ever coming to anything at my school. But now it's not only normal, it's increasingly expected. Not a bad thing, but it's a thing. It's something else contributing to the landscape. Here's another one that contributes a lot more maybe more than all the other things put together, the prevalence of what some psychologists call sprint and recover scheduling. And that's what it sounds like. Our days get packed together, scheduled back to back to back, like wind sprints. We go, 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 do, 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 until we collapse. Un un until our minds are just done and we, we, we spend the evening watching TV or gaming or scrolling or doing something low energy and mindless until we collapse into sleep and get up and do it again. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. You see it, you live it. Saturday Night Live has even done a sketch about it, which by the way doesn't make it good, just <laughs> to be clear. And it's not good. Because besides sucking all the joy out of life, isolation, loneliness, friendlessness is tied to depression, it's tied to anxiety, it's tied to physical illness, it's tied to sudden death. But here's the thing, I think that problem or that portfolio, that constellation of problems, pales in comparison to another problem that isn't getting written about in Time or Newsweek or HuffPost or The Atlantic. Here's my observation. I don't think we've just forgotten how to be friends with each other. I think we've forgotten how to be friends with God. And that probably seems like a really weird introduction to the book of Romans especially Romans chapter 7. I mean, John 15, sure, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Okay, that would fit. Or, or maybe a character study on Abraham. Abraham believed God and was called God's friend. That'd be a good tee-up for that. But Romans, Romans 7, but here's the thing. Paul's going to ask a question this morning. Paul's going to pose a question in our text this morning about sin and temptation, and it's going to be a question we can all relate to. And the answer that he proposes, the answer he comes up with, I believe, has everything to do with friendship. Let's dig in. We left off two weeks ago in verse 12, Paul talking about the law. Again, the Ten Commandments and, and, and the adjacent instructions that God gave in the Old Testament. What do those have to do with you and I as New Testament believers? Paul's been telling us. It's not for nothing that Romans 7 is sometimes called law school. And so far in chapter 7, Paul's been reminding us of some of the functions of the law, the way that the law reveals our sin, the way that the law reveals our sin nature, the way that the law points to our need for a savior. 
The purpose of the law is to prove we can't keep the law. That was two weeks ago. That's where we left off. The law holds up a mirror, shows us to ourselves, shows us our sin, our sin nature, our need for a Savior, and that's all really, really good. And Paul knows that there will be some readers, he was certainly thinking of his readers in Rome, but the Holy Spirit knew that there would be some readers throughout the centuries that would read what Paul just said and be less convinced that it's really, really good. So verse 13, Paul does what Paul does. Starting in verse 13, he does what he's been doing. He anticipates the reaction. He anticipates the question, the objection, and he responds to it. Verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Paul, is that what you're saying? He imagines somebody asking. Paul, are you saying that the law is bad? Verse 13, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He answers, certainly not. The law isn't bad. Sin is bad. But sin, still verse 13, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The law didn't force me to sin, Paul is saying. The law revealed the sin that was in me just waiting to get out, the sin nature that was already there, that was native to me. When the law said don't, my sin nature said can't stop me. When the law said no, or I'm sorry, when the law said do, my sin nature said, well, you're not the boss of me. There was nothing bad about what the law asked me to do, Paul said. The only bad thing in the equation was me. For we know, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but here's the thing, I'm carnal, sold under sin. I'm the opposite of spiritual. I'm flesh. The law, this is Paul's point, the law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is divine. It's from God in a very real sense. It's about God. Nothing wrong with it. Everything right with it. Everything that's wrong is wrong with me. Without Jesus, Paul is saying, hey, I'm unholy, I'm imperfect, I'm carnal. He's speaking for himself, but he means all of us, because that's true for all of us. Even with Jesus, even after coming to the cross and confessing our sin and saying, Jesus, I need a Savior, would you be my Savior? We're still, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're still thoroughly imperfect, really, really ugly, very, very sinful, way more often than we wish was true. Yes? Please tell me it's not just me. Okay. Paul continues, because, because this, is, this is what I see. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. I don't do the thing I want to do. I do the thing I very much don't want to do. And I don't get why I'm like this, not completely. I don't want to be like this. I just know that I am. I am like this. I watch myself and see it, Paul says. Not doing the thing I want to do, the good thing, the godly thing, and doing the thing that I hate, the ugly thing, the thing I know is sin. Now pause, because some of you are aware that theologians love to argue about this passage. Is Paul talking here about his life as a believer or as an unbeliever? Is he describing what it was like before he was a Christian? Or is he describing his life since he's become a Christian? And both sides have grammatical reasons for their positions. And I think that they missed the point. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones actually expresses this very articulately. It misses the point. Because we all know, before the cross and on this side of the cross, we all know what it's like to struggle with temptation, don't we? We know, even as Christians, what it's like to struggle with temptation. We know what it's like as Christ followers to blow it royally. We know what it's like to struggle. We know what it's like to fail. And I think it's important that we say that, to pretend we don't struggle, to say, well, you're safe, so you shouldn't struggle. Everything should be easy breezy. I think that's incredibly dangerous. And I can't believe it's Paul's intent. In fact, he seems to be doing the opposite. He seems to be inviting us into his struggle. And in the process, maybe relating to our struggle. Because he goes on to say essentially the same thing a couple more times, a couple more ways to make sure we're on board. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. I watch myself and I say, yeah, the law is good because it's convicting me. It's showing me that what I'm doing isn't good and apparently I need that. <laughs> but now, verse 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's not what my best self wants, but I'm still doing it. For I know that in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I know in my flesh nothing good dwells. And in a way that I know that, my flesh still wants to sin. My soul is redeemed. No question about that. My soul is redeemed. The problem is it lives in a body that is still very much hardwired for sin. That's why we need new bodies for heaven. That's why glorified bodies. There's nothing corrupt allowed in heaven, and these bodies really, really corrupt. <laughs> and that's why, verse 18, to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. I want to, I just can't find a way to. Not within myself, at least. The answer to my flesh, Paul is saying, the answer to my lust, the answer to my craving, the answer to my selfishness does not exist within my flesh. I can try, and I do try again and again. I search within myself again and again. I always end up going to the same place. I always end up doing the same things. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Same, same point with fewer words. Paul is saying, I just keep failing. Not always, but not never. And I can tell myself, verse 20, Paul says, I can tell myself now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but still sin that dwells in me. I can say I'm redeemed. That's not the real me. Jesus looks at me and he sees me perfect. It's just my sin nature rearing up, flexing, asserting itself. It's not the real me. But it doesn't really fix anything, does it? It still leaves me with a problem because I'm still sinning. And that's still not okay. I'm still being ungrateful to God. I'm still not honoring God, not worshiping God with whatever part of my life is involved. I'm not growing closer to God. In fact, I'm quenching my fellowship with God. Sin does that. It distances itself, uh, distances us from God, puts a barrier up between us and God. When I'm sinning, I'm, I'm, I'm quenching my fellowship with God. I'm not being used of God the way that he wants to use me. 
I'm not serving the way that he wants me to serve, loving the way that he's given me to love. I'm not being the witness he's left me here to be. All of those aspects of my life are suffering. Why? Because I'm letting my sin nature win. And the thing is, Paul's underlying assumption, he's assuming we know this because he's already talked about this, we don't have to. We don't have to let our sin nature win. Before we were saved, we had no choice. Before we came to Christ, our sin nature was going to win 10 out of 10 times. Our sin nature was the only nature we had. And the only worship we knew, the only worship we were interested in, is worship of self. We've knelt before the trinity of stupidity, me, myself, and I. But now, and this is Paul's point, but now... We know what sin is. Now we know what sin does. Now we know it's good to avoid it. And now we know through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can avoid it. In Christ, we have power over sin. And Paul, on the one hand, Paul is celebrating that. He's rejoicing in that. Jesus defeated sin, and we're partakers of that. He defeated sin, and he's able to defeat sin in us today. On the one hand, Paul is celebrating that. But as great as his celebration is, is also as great as his, his mourning is. He's lamenting at the same time that even though Jesus has and can defeat sin in us, and will defeat sin in us if we let him, a lot of times we don't let him. That's where I think Paul is at while he's writing this. Realizing on the one hand, in Christ, we don't need to sin anymore. But sometimes we don't sin any less either. Verse 21, I find then a law. And, and unfortunate translation because he doesn't mean the law of God here. I find then a pattern, a, a trend, a habit is what he means in verse 21. That evil is present with me, yes me, the one who wills to do good. I still find myself in situations, I even find myself in whole seasons where I do exactly the thing I don't want to do. I delight, verse 22, in the law of God according to the inward man. I'm saved, I know I'm saved, I love being saved. And I want to honor God who saved me. I want to worship him with my life. I do. I want to honor and worship God. I don't want to sin. But, verse 23, I see another law, another pattern, another habit, another trend in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I keep losing to my flesh. At which point, Paul just cries out, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh, this body of death, from this, from me? Who will deliver me from me? He's, he's finally gotten to his, 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 his point. He's gone round and round a couple times, but now he's ready to, to land it. Which, by the way, I don't think the round and round is pointless, I think Paul is repeating himself to convey to us the very real depth of his frustration with himself. But now, having expressed it, he gives up. He just cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I can't do this. Will someone help me? Will someone save me? Some commentators wonder at this point, is Paul referring to the practice in some Roman prisons of chaining a prisoner to a dead body? 
who will deliver me from this body of death? Is this the image that he's trying to conjure up? Paul feeling like he's dragging his own corpse along with him. Because Romans would do this. They would chain a prisoner to a corpse and force him to drag it around and deal with the weight and deal with the smell and deal with the, the disease and pestilence that it would attract. It would affect everything the prisoner did. That's how Paul felt. Whether he had that specific image in mind or not, it's a pretty good picture for what he's trying to describe. My redeemed soul is trapped in this body. Trapped in this horrible, repulsive body. How can I ever be free? Can anyone ever be truly free in this life? This, this battle that I keep losing, where I keep doing the thing I don't want to and don't do the thing that I want to. And, and we all identify with Paul, don't we? Maybe not now, maybe not this moment, maybe not this morning, but not never. We've been there. Some of you are there. And we all end up there way more often than we wish, way more often than we want to admit. Doing the thing we hate, not doing the thing that we want. So what's the answer to the question? Is there no hope? There is. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That sounds like a rhetorical question, but it isn't. Sounds like Paul's just venting, just just barfing out his feelings, not really expecting an answer, not believing anyone has an answer, but there is an answer and Paul knows it. He's actually been leading up to it this whole time. He's been building up to verse 25 where he reveals it. Ta-da! Where he declares it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God I am delivered I can be delivered. I am being delivered through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God that when I became a Christian, I was delivered. I thank God that when Jesus returns, I will be delivered and leave this body behind. But I thank God that between the already and the not yet, I can be delivered as I yield to him. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a question that has an answer, and his name is Jesus. What, what, what Paul is saying in our text this morning, from verse 13 on, flesh can't defeat flesh. Not in any meaningful or lasting way. Because my flesh is still governed by my sin nature. And my sin nature isn't going to roll over. And my sin nature isn't going to keep my sin nature from sinning. My sin nature isn't going to deny itself. Every, every once in a while, you'll see an experiment that tests this, not intending to. But every once in a while, you'll see a business or a government initiative test this theory. A restaurant will open and they'll say, there are no prices. Pay whatever you want. Pay as much as you want. Take it for free if you want. Or, or the government will say, hey, we've got brightly covered bikes and we put them in these racks around town and, and take the bike as long as you want, ride it anywhere that you want, just bring it back to one of the racks. And, and everyone is full of optimism and, and loves the idea and thinks that those are great things in principle. And they never work. Not for long. Because apart from Christ, our sin nature wins. And listen, even in Christ, even as Christians, our sin nature will still win if we try to defeat our flesh with our flesh. 
Our, our flesh will go along. Follow God, sure. Sounds like a great idea. Sounds like there's probably some benefits there. Sounds like it's the right thing to do. But if we only enlist our flesh to make that happen, eventually sin wins. Flesh can't defeat flesh. Over the years, I've shared a number of strategies for battling flesh, for defeating temptation. One of my favorites is based on the old adage, good, cheap, fast, pick two. You're familiar with that, right? If it's cheap and fast, it won't be good. If it's good and fast, it won't be cheap, and, and so on. Here's a variation. Alone, aimless, exhausted. Pick two. If I'm alone and exhausted, I need a plan. If I go home alone and aimless, I'm going to ask myself, what do I feel like doing? Hey, flesh, what do you feel like? That never ends well. If I'm alone and aimless, okay, that's all right, as long as I'm not exhausted. As long as I have a chance that I'm going to focus my mind on Christ. If I'm exhausted and aimless, I better not be alone. I need accountability or I will make bad decisions. It's a good strategy. It's helped me many, many, many times. Sometimes I'll stop in my driveway. All right, there's no one home and I'm, I'm wiped out. What am I going to do? What are the first three things that I do when I walk in the door? What are the five things that I'm going to do while I'm waiting for other people? Just, just that difference can be a game changer. We call strategies like that hedges, though. Like hedgerows in the ancient world, or, or even the not ancient world. The world until tanks, basically. Because until the era of tanks, a good hedgerow could slow an advancing army long enough for a counterattack to be launched, for that advancing army, as it gets stalled out and mudded out, to be surrounded and set upon. That's the missing element when we rely on hedges to battle sin. All hedges do is slow it down. All it'll do is, eventually the army will hack its way through the hedgerow. Different analogy, all hedges do is pile furniture in front of the door. Eventually, a well-motivated intruder is going to force his way in. All hedges do is slow down the attack, and it's all they're intended to do. Slow down the attack until we can call in an airstrike. Slow down the attack long enough for us to call upon the power of God the Holy Spirit. Slow it down long enough that we can enlist the support of God who will win the battle for us. It is not enough, never enough, to battle flesh with flesh. Our flesh will tell, yeah, that's enough, that's good. We'll be fine. Flesh lies. Flesh, li flesh will agree with anything it needs to agree with to get out of the conversation. God is better. Yeah. Not sinning is good. Sure. Accountability is helpful. I guess. Hedges, fine, put them in place. Right up to the point of decision, right up to the point where following God costs, right up to the point where our flesh has to give up what it desperately wants, right up to the point of saying no. 
If we haven't enlisted God's support at that point, we will fail. Because in the battle of flesh versus flesh, flesh wins. Oh, we can start tomorrow. It's fine. This time won't count. It's not really that important. It's not really that bad. Look at what he's doing. Look what she's doing. Look at what they're doing. I can only imagine what they're doing. I bet this is something that everybody is doing. I want this. I need this. I can't help it. I, 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 or if you prefer, I, I, I. <laughs> From verse 9 to verse 25, what word do you see pop up more than any other? I. I, me, mine, myself, 40 times in 16 verses. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I have no power over sin. There is no power in me, native to me, to defeat sin. In a battle of my flesh versus my flesh, my flesh will win. Sin will win. So what's the answer? Don't fight flesh with flesh. Fight flesh with spirit. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The question has an answer. His name is Jesus. Flesh can't defeat flesh. Jesus will. Jesus does. So why isn't he? Why is it so many of us identify so deeply with verse 15 and not so much with verse 25? Why do we identify with the battle more than the victory? I thought Jesus could defeat sin. Yeah, he can. We're not letting him. We're not asking him to. Why not? My theory? Because we're not friends with him. We're not being friends with Jesus. And you're saying, sure I am. Really? Yeah. Okay, let's test that. Let's apply the best test of friendship I know, the 2 a.m. test. Phone rings at 2 a.m. Actually, the test on the way to the test is do you answer? <laughs> or do you look at caller ID and say, are they kidding You're serious? No. No, it's going to roll to voicemail. If they ask me tomorrow, I'm going to tell them I was asleep. But let's say that you answer. And someone says, yeah, I'm in Oklahoma and it's a long story, but can you come pick me up? I've been arrested and it's a long story. Can you come bail me out? I've got bed bugs and can I come stay with you? <laughs> I, I like, drive to Oklahoma City, sure. Bed bugs, no. <laughs> Just found the line, it's right there. <laughs> But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The real test of friendship isn't what you're thinking. The real test of friendship is not whether you answer the phone, and it's not whether you drive to Oak City or ask somebody to get changed in the garage and put their clothes in a plastic bag so they can sleep on. No. The real test of friendship, for, for, for you and me, for, for Jesus people, for people of integrity, people who don't just use people, do we make the call when we're the ones in Oklahoma City, when we're the ones in jail, when we're the ones who are homeless? If we're not people who just use people, but we're Jesus people, who do you call? 
I know he doesn't work tomorrow. He could come pick me up. We'd be home by like 3 a.m., but you know, we haven't talked much in the last six months. I can't call out of nowhere and ask a favor. I know he has the money. In fact, he just bailed his brother-in-law out last month. He probably knows a good bondsman, but I didn't go to his barbecue and I didn't go to his kid's birthday party and I didn't go to like the last five things he invited me to. There's no way I can call him. I know that she's got a spare room. She's always inviting me over, but we haven't talked since she and Fred got divorced and she probably thinks that I blame her. She's always inviting me and I'm always finding reasons to say no. So how do I invite myself over now? See, that's the test of friendship. It's not who do you help at 2 a.m., it's who do you ask at 2 a.m. When it comes to helping, I think most of us, if we can, we do. But when it comes time for asking, who do you ask? That's a whole different calculus, isn't it? Because you probably know a lot of people who are able to help. You probably know a lot of people who are willing to help. But the ones we're most likely to call are the ones who are already in our lives, already talking to, already doing stuff with. The person for whom friend isn't just a label that we apply, it's a reality that we're enjoying together. I, I saw this play out a few, literally a few days ago. Brother in the fellowship in the, in the church here needed help late at night. It wasn't 2 a.m., but it was late. And he, he knows people. He conservatively knows 40 people in the church, probably more. But I, but I actually stopped and counted. Who do I know that he knows? It's at least 40. I know that he has at least 20 phone numbers. When he needed help, though, he didn't call the person who lived closest. He didn't call the person who was most expert in this area. He didn't call the person who was most spiritual, because that would have been Jim Yankst. No, he called the one who'd been over most recently. He called the one who had been visiting most consistently. He called the brother who was most in his life already when he needed help. Is that Jesus for you and me? Let's talk about what we're talking about. Is Jesus our friend? Of course he is. He said that he was. John 15, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. He proved that he was. No greater love has any man than this, the one who lays down his life for his friends. Is Jesus able and willing to help at 2 a.m.? At 3 p.m.? Whenever we need? Whenever we're in a jam? Is he able and willing to help? Yes, obviously, absolutely. Will he answer when we call without question? Will we call? That is a question. And you know and I know the answers, not always. And if we haven't been in touch lately, if we haven't been talking much lately, if we haven't been being friends, you know the answer is not likely. Are you going to call? Not if we're all not already hanging out on the daily. I mean, your, your cousin's in an accident, airlifted to Kansas City. Okay, you call everybody. You call Jesus, of course you do. Nothing to lose, everything you gain. Of course you call Jesus. But to help your flesh defeat the sin that your flesh desperately wants to sin? 
Are you going to pick that moment to resurrect your relationship? I don't think so. With, with a friendship, there's a familiarity. There's a, a, a comfortability. You don't mind that, 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 that you pay for the Dr. Pepper because next time you know they're going to pay for the Dr. Pepper. You walk into their house without knocking or maybe it's just one of those, hey, I'm here, and you walk in because that's what you expect them to do when they come and visit you. Their kid melts down while you're watching them and you know that it's cool and you don't make a big deal because last week when they were watching your kid, your kid pooped in the tub and it wasn't a big deal. The point is in that kind of a relationship, you don't have a hard time asking for help because you trust the relationship. Because you've asked for help recently and it's been there and it hasn't been a thing. You've asked for help, they've been glad to help. Probably the relationship has even gotten stronger because you trusted it and you were willing to ask for help. I called a friend last week and I started off by saying, hey, I hate to ask, but I need a favor. And he said, shut up. And I said, no, seriously. And he said, no, shut up. I said, but you don't even know. And he said, will you stop treating me like I'm other people? He said, it's you and me. What do you need? And I remember that's why I called him. (laughs) Because he was my friend. And because I knew that was what his response would be. That's why we need to call on Jesus regularly. Because that's his response every time we cry out. Jesus, I really want to sin right now. Will you help me? Yeah, it's you and me. Of course I will. Jesus, sin looks really good to me right now. And I know last time I didn't ask. I just went ahead and sinned. But will you help me this time, even though I didn't ask last time? It's you and me. Of course I will. Jesus, I need to not look at this page. I need to not hate this person. I need to not lose my temper over this issue. I need to not be jealous of this family. I need to not share this story that was entrusted to me in confidence. I need to not spend this money on the thing that I really don't need. Okay, let's do this. It's you and me. Every time his answer is going to be, it's you and me. We've got this. It's you and me. Let's do this. But again... I'm not going to ask the question. I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to cry out. I'm not going to let Jesus help out if we haven't been hanging out. I'm not going to ask for help if Jesus isn't already consistently part of my life. I'm not going to ask for help with my sin. Somebody else's health, an economic situation, maybe. With my sin, uh uh-uh. So how do I do that? How do I make Jesus part of my life? Jesus says, I'm his friend. How do I make him my friend? Four thoughts as we wrap up. People who study friendship point at four things, four elements to cultivating and maintaining friendship. Rich, vital, substantive relationship that you depend on, that you not only can depend on, that you will depend on. The first four things, the first is preconceptions. People who expect other people to like them end up with more people liking them. Pygmalion effect kind of a thing. I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. Self-fulfilling prophecy. People who expect people to like them end up with more people liking them. What does that have to do with Jesus? What do you think Jesus thinks of you? Do you think Jesus likes you? 
I'm surprised how many people don't. How many people in the church are convinced Jesus is mad at them, doesn't care about them, doesn't like them very much? Paul's actually going to get into this when we get to chapter 8. The love that God has for us. The way that he looks at us. I've said this before. At weddings... I don't look at the bride. Everyone else, okay, everybody stand and the music changes and the bride comes in and it's the big reveal. I don't look at the bride. I look at the groom. Because I love watching the groom's face when he sees his bride on his wedding day for the first time. That, that look of, oh, God loves me. <laughs> Jesus never stops looking at us that way. We are his bride. He is madly in love with us. If you're not convinced of that, lean in when we get to chapter 8. Because if you're not convinced Jesus loves you, you're not going to ask him for help. You're going to be ashamed that you need help and, and you're going to be ripping yourself off because Jesus wants to help. If, if you've gone to the cross, if you've asked Jesus for forgiveness once, if you said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need your salvation then there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Also nothing you can do to make him love you less. And there's nothing he would rather do than help you live a life of worship and devotion. That's the first thing that we've got to think about. If we want our friendship with Jesus to be real, if we want to cultivate a relationship we'll actually use, we need to check our preconceptions. Second thing friendship depends on, proximity. Closeness. We know that Jesus is a friend closer than a brother. We know that he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. But what does that mean to us? Are we spending time with Jesus when we don't need anything from him? Are we just enjoying him, enjoying time with him? Are we inviting him to spend his day with us, inviting him along on our day? Are we talking to him about simple things as well as dramatic things? Inviting him to share our joys and triumphs as well as our tests and our trials. So that when trials come along, when temptation comes along, it's nothing to ask because the conversation is already ongoing. I remember being at a pastor's conference and hearing a former missionary to Iran speak. He was held prisoner, he was beaten, he was tortured for weeks. And the whole time, he, he, he said, I had low moments, but I was able to keep witnessing to my captors up to the day of my release. I was able, I can look you in the eye and tell you that I loved my torturer. Okay, how do you do that? And he said it was a few days into captivity that Jesus said, hey, want to hang out today? And he didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> so he cultivated the practice of spending the day with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what are we going to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do today? Well, I'd like to escape, but if that's not an option, and, and I'll, 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 try to, I'll try to post, if the video is still up there, I'll post his testimony. But he said spending the day with Jesus made all of the difference in not allowing his heart to grow hard to his captors and not descending into hate and to bitterness even while he was being tortured. And knowing that he had an impact, knowing that Christ in him had an impact on the people who were watching him the weeks that he was in captivity. Proximity, 
closeness. Third thing that we have to pay attention to, patience. We all know that friendship isn't born in a day, not usually. It usually is born of testing and trusting and testing some more, relying on someone, seeing them come through, seeing them deliver, and saying, okay, I can trust that much. Maybe, maybe I'm okay trying a little bit more. And then in the case of Jesus, it's the same thing. The more that we see his spirit defeat sin in our life, the more we'll ask his spirit to defeat sin in our life, is the more we'll trust Jesus. It's a process. One of the most important things we can remember is not to give up, to trust the process, to be patient with the process. We get obsessed, am I depending perfectly? No, okay, it didn't work, on to something else. No, that's, that's not how relationships work. Am I depending more? Am I trusting more? We need to worry less about the velocity and more about the trajectory. Are we going in the right direction? Am I trusting him more than I was last month? More than I was last year? Fourth, preconception, proximity, patience. Last one, if I gave you time, we don't have time, but if I gave you time, you'd think of it. Priority. I came across an article on friendship, just studying and praying over this message. I came across this quote. Keep in mind, this isn't about friendship with Jesus. This is about friendship with people. Deep friendships, Jesus as a person, you know what I mean. Deep friendships require great sacrifice. They demand you set aside your preferences, goals, and at, even, at times even your hopes for the good of someone else. If that sounds like too much work, you'll lead a sad and lonely life. But in your defense, you've probably been taught to think prioritizing others is too much work. In fact, you've probably been taught that prioritizing your life goals is a moral obligation. Deep friendships require great sacrifice. Jesus is God, but he's also a person. And like any person, friendship with Jesus is going to be difficult if the only time we talk is when I need something, and if when we talk, it's only about me. Not difficult because he's petty. Jesus isn't like that. Difficult because I'm selfish, and I won't get out of my own way. It's selfish and short-sighted. Because, because think about it. If I'm cultivating a relationship with Jesus where his Wishes and perspective and desires, where that matters, like the wishes and wants and perspectives of any friend should matter, if I'm pursuing that friendship, investing in that friendship, enjoying that friendship, one of the benefits of that friendship is I'm going to have a whole lot less time to go sin. Sin is going to have a whole lot less appeal. Think about when you started dating your spouse. All of a sudden, you had a lot less time for stupid stuff. You wait every opportunity, every invitation. Would I rather do this with, with those guys, this stupid thing with those stupid people, or spend time with her? Because she's neat. <laughs> is, is, is this something that I have to give up time with her to, to do? Can we do it together? If we do it or if I do it at all, is it going to help the relationship? Is it going to get in the way of the relationship? See, when we make Jesus our priority... Not just when we need his power, but when we want his friendship, he will be the best friend we ever had. And when we know he's that friend, when we're letting him be that friend, we'll not only cry out to him less, 
but it'll be easier to do it when we need to. It'll be easier and easier to ask, easier and easier to cry out. And every time we cry out, it'll get easier and easier from there. Jesus, deliver me from this body of death. Yeah, it's you and me. Let's do it. And watch him show up and praise him for it. And thank God that we're being saved through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what the, the, the enormity of what we don't deserve. We do not deserve a friend like you, Jesus. But that's shame. That's condemnation. And Paul's going to tell us in chapter 8, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for it, and it dishonors you, and it denigrates the cross. You died for guilt and shame. You brought us back into relationship with you. Oh, Jesus, help us to get out of our own way. Help us to stop chasing after lesser things, settling for stupid stuff, for pale imitations of the love that's just waiting for us. Jesus, teach us to be your friends with a fraction of the devotion that, that you show in your friendship to us. Deepen our relationship. Grow our commitment. Manifest your love. Give us, give us love so that we can give it back to you. Show us how to give it back to you. That we can be more than overcomers that we can be witnesses, that we can live transformed lives that say to the world, Jesus is real and he lives in me. Jesus lives. He's alive in me. Jesus saves and he's saving me. Do your work in us, Jesus.